to the sermon webcast of Good News Lutheran Church of Mount Horn, Wisconsin. The following sermon was preached on April 24th, 2016, on the basis of 1 John 5, verses 1 through 6. Sociologists would look at the world that we live in today, and they would say that we live in the middle of what has been dubbed a victimhood culture. Now, when sociologists say that, here's what they mean. If you would go back to the very earliest days of our country, there was what was known as an honor culture. Now, in an honor culture, a person's value, a person's worth had to be earned, and you had to earn it all by yourself. In other words, if someone did something wrong against you, any sort of injustice or offense, whether it is big or whether it is small, there needed to be action, there needed to be retaliation. But again, only and directly by you. So when you picture an honor culture, think think Wild Wild West. And when a dispute that started in the saloon ended up being a fight out on the street or maybe even a duel to the death, that's an honor culture. Well, eventually that honor culture gave way to what sociologists would call a dignity culture. Now in a dignity culture, a person's value and their worth are not necessarily earned, but but are simply assumed. Now, the benefit of that is that in a dignity culture, small minor offenses, small minor injustices can be ignored. In a dignity culture, it's seen as a positive thing to have a thick skin, to be able to let things just roll off your back or bounce off of you because your worth and your value are simply assumed. Now, if, if the injustice is big enough, you might act, you might take action, but it doesn't necessarily have to be directly. You might go to a third party, you might go to the police, you might go to a court and involve them in the process, but in a dignity culture, you would do so as rarely, as quickly, and as quietly as possible. But now, like I said, that, that dignity culture has given way to what sociologists have described as a victimhood culture, and that that victimhood culture kind of combines the worst parts of the previous two. In a victimhood culture, small offenses, in fact, even the smallest of offenses, are big deals and need to be acted upon, but not directly. No, in a victimhood culture, if you are, if you are done some sort of injustice, what you do is you try and rally as many sympathizers as you possibly can. You try to rally as many people who sympathize with you as the offended and as many people as you can rally to be hostile against the offender. And you do so using whatever platform, whatever means are at your disposal. As you can imagine, it's certainly no accident or no coincidence that this victimhood culture has gained steam in an age where the internet and social media give everyone a platform to to rally sympathizers behind them. Now you see evidence of this victimhood culture all around us every day, but I, I think this past week was sort of like Christmas for the victimhood culture. On the one hand, you, you had the Jesus lunches up in Middleton. Did you hear about these going on at the Middleton School District? On the other hand, you had the, the bathroom use issue in the state of North Carolina and in Target stores, yet another mass shooting this week in the state of Ohio, which will surely bring gun control laws to the center of everyone's attention again. 
I mean, when you think about it, this is kind of like the top 10 list of the things and the issues that most sharply divide our country, and somehow all of them were in the headlines this week. Now, this might disappoint some of you, but we're not here today to talk about who's right and who's wrong in each one of those issues. In fact, that kind of simplistic analysis usually isn't easy and and usually isn't very helpful. Now, I only mention those issues because in each one, you see our victimhood culture clearly at work. In each one of those issues, you see people who are on both sides of the issue wanting you to view them as the victim and wanting you to view the opponent as the villain. So no, we're not here today to talk about who's right and who's wrong in any any one of those particular issues. And we're not even here to talk about the most effective way that a person could get someone to see their side of things in, in any sort of issue like that. No, instead, as we turn our attention to these words from the Apostle John this morning, we're going to see that the single biggest determining factor that that decides how we as Christians approach issues like this, approach these little societal battles that sometimes sprout up, it's not whether we belong to an honor culture or a dignity culture or a victimhood culture. It's that we as Christians belong to a completely different culture altogether. A culture that John describes as a victory culture. So as is normally the case, You and I become a part of this victory culture by being born into it, but not not in the normal, natural way. This is what John says. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. In other words, when a person comes to faith in Jesus, it's almost as if that person is born a second time or born again, you've maybe heard. Anyone who puts their faith in Jesus has been born again, the first time as a child of mom and dad, the second time as a child of God. Now, being born as a child of God means all kinds of things for you, and we'll talk about those today. It means that you have a new family. It means that you have a new home. And it also means that you have a new set of rules, a new set of guiding rules principles that determine how you will think and live and act. Every family has its own set of rules, right? In fact, I want you to think for a moment about the rules that were a part of the family that you were born into. I'm guessing that that a lot of those rules were completely normal. That as you grew up, you found out that even though those were your family rules, there were a lot of families around you that had, had similar rules. And so you might say, yeah, in in my house, in my family, we open our presents on Christmas Eve instead of Christmas Day. No big deal, right? Or in my house, when we walk through the door, mom wants us to take off our shoes right away because, because she's kind of picky like that, right? No big deal, no harm done. But I'm guessing that as you grew up, you also found out that there were rules that your family had that weren't exactly normal, that not a lot of other families had. In fact, we might even have some fun going around the room telling stories about the rules that we had that were very weird and very peculiar to our house and our family. When it comes to God's family, it kind of works the same way. There are a lot of rules that God has that everyone else, everyone in the world around us is perfectly okay with. Rules like love your neighbor as yourself. Rules like be kind 
be compassionate, be forgiving. But then what happens is that as society changes over time, and and it's inevitable that society does that, as society changes over time, there are other rules that at one point everyone was okay with, but then come to the point where that is no longer the case. Back in the 1970s, it was the idea that life begins at conception and that life, therefore, ought to be protected from the moment of conception. Much more recently, of course, it's the idea that that marriage is not only a lifelong union, but is a union that was intended to be between one man and one woman. At one point in time, everyone in our society was perfectly okay with those rules, but, but now we're at the point where there are plenty of people who are saying, no, no, the world should be run by these rules instead. And that's what you see going on. That's when you see those various societal battles sprouting up as they do. So friends, here's what I'm here to tell you today. That when those battles sprout up, when, when all of a sudden the rules that govern God's family are no longer palatable to the rules that, that govern the world, invariably and almost inevitably, we as Christians, we as part of the family of God, are guaranteed to lose those battles. And here's what I mean by that. You see, there are, there are tactics, there are strategies, there are, are weapons, you might say, for the fighting of those battles that are perfectly able to be used by the world around us that have no place within the people born of God. You see, it turns out that those very same rules that God has for us those same rules that talk about how life begins at conception and how marriage is between one man and one woman, those rules also include the idea that we are to love our enemies, that we are to pray for people who oppose us, that we are to be completely honest, completely patient, completely gentle and understanding, and that we are to repay evil, not with more evil, but with good. And guess who doesn't have to follow those rules? The world around us, right? They don't have to follow those rules. And so there, there is language, there are words, there is vocabulary, there are names, and, and there is tone that is perfectly available to the rest of the world around us that has no business in a people that has been born of God. And it would be the height of hypocrisy, friends, for us to take certain rules of God's family and take those out to the world and say everybody ought to live by these rules even as we break all the rest of the rules in the process. And so if you ask me, it means that when these conflicts, when these issues come up, it's almost like we're destined to lose. And yet as John describes this conflict, In these verses, he doesn't describe it as a a losing culture or a loser culture. He describes it as a victory culture. Right? This is how John says it. He says, Everyone who is born of God overcomes the world. In other words, when you are born of God, when you put your faith in Jesus, you are not destined for a life of losing to the world or getting trampled by the world or getting defeated by the world. John says, Those who put their trust in Jesus overcome the world. The world, And he really takes it a step farther when he says, Who is it that overcomes the world? 
It is only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. In other words, the very same faith in Jesus that makes us a part of this culture, a part of the family of God, that very same faith in Jesus also makes that culture a victory culture. So how does that work? Well, we've talked about this before, but it's good to bring up from time to time that when we talk about our faith, And when we talk about the good things that our faith does, the incredible things that our faith accomplishes, it's really not our faith that is doing much of anything. It's the object of our faith. It is the one that we are putting our faith in that is doing all of the work. And specifically, of course, for us, that's our Savior, Jesus. So here's how our faith in Jesus makes the family and the culture that we are born into a victory culture. John says this, that Jesus Christ came by water and blood. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. Now, when you heard me read that before, and and when you heard me read it just again, that might sound like kind of a, a confusing or cryptic statement. What in the world does John mean there? And there's kind of a lengthy explanation for exactly why he says it the way he says it, but here's John's point. His point is that when God Almighty up in heaven, the maker and the ruler of the universe, decided that he was going to come down to earth to conquer the world and conquer all of the evil in the world, he did so by blood. In other words, first of all, he took on flesh and blood, and secondly, he shed that blood with his death on the cross. In other words, when God decided that he was going to be victorious over the world, he did it by sending his son Jesus to be a victim of the world. Recently, I came across a a Christian author, an article that a Christian author had written that put this in what I thought was, was kind of a fascinating and memorable way. He said, What amazes me about Jesus, what's truly remarkable about Jesus, is how uncaffeinated he always was. Does that sound strange to you? Jesus, the decaf deity. Think about that for a second, though. While Jesus was here on earth, there were all kinds of people who were battling for control of the world, just like there are today. At his birth, it was King Herod who thought that Jesus' birth was a threat to his throne, and so he ordered that all of the baby boys of Bethlehem would be mercilessly slaughtered. When Jesus started to preach and teach and do miracles, the religious leaders of his day were so jealous of the following that Jesus had won that they were constantly trying to make him look like a fool and ultimately plotted his death. As he stood trial before Pontius Pilate, Pilate's only concern was keeping the Israelites under control so that he wouldn't lose his throne. All of these people trying to fight over control of the world And there's Jesus, completely uncaffeinated, calm, confident, always honest, always patient, always gentle and understanding, always repaying evil with good, right up to his death. So let me ask, by becoming a victim of the world, was Jesus defeated by the world? 
Did Jesus lose to evil? Did evil get the best of Jesus? There's a reason I'm asking you that question four weeks after Easter. Did evil get the best of Jesus? Are you kidding me? By his resurrection from the dead, Jesus conquered the world. By his resurrection from the dead, Jesus trampled on the world. By his resurrection from the dead, Jesus took his right foot and put it right on the throat of the world and then did a little tap dance in victory over the world. So yes, Jesus has very much conquered the world, but again, not by fighting against the world, but, becoming, but by becoming a victim of the world. And friends, because he did, that's why our faith in Jesus makes us part of a new family. A family where our Father in heaven, where he loves you so much, and where, and where he approves of you so much to the, to the same degree that he loves and approves his own son. A family that no matter what might happen during your life, no matter what you might suffer at the hands of the evil in this world, it's a family where you know that you have an eternal home in heaven waiting for you. One that has your name already written right there above the door. You see, that's how our faith makes us part of a victory culture. It's because faith is kind of like a hand that is just dying to reach out and grab on to something. And as Christians, our faith, what our faith grabs onto is Jesus and his victory and everything that that victory brings from forgiveness to peace with God to eternal salvation. And friends, if that hand is really reaching out and grabbing onto Jesus, then it must by necessity also let go of the world. And in so doing, not lose to the world, but overcome the world. So maybe think of it this way. Imagine a basketball game where one team decides they're going to break all the rules. They are cheating, they are playing dirty, they are throwing elbows, they are trying to trip, they're trying to deliberately injure the players on the other team all so that they can win the game. Now if you were on the other team, and you were desperate to try to win that game, and the outcome of that game was hanging in the balance, what would happen? At some point, you would convince yourself that you should play by the same rules, that you should do exactly the same thing. But now imagine a game that's already been decided. One whose final score wasn't even close, and you're on the winning side. But then long after the final buzzer has sounded, long after the final score was determined, after all the fans have left the gym, suddenly that losing team decides to run back out onto the court and start doing layup drills. Not to practice, but because they are so deluded in thinking that, that the points that they are scoring, the baskets they are making, will actually count toward the final score and that somehow they can actually reverse the outcome of the game. Now, if you were on the winning team and you were watching that happen, what would you do? Would you freak out? Would you lose your mind? Would you, would you go out there and try and stop them? Would you launch this massive protest about how outraged you are that they're doing this? I, I don't think you would do any of those things, would you? What would you do? Well, there are, there are a lot of wrong ways for us Christians to engage a world that is, that is increasingly rebelling against God's rules, but there's not necessarily one and only right way. But whatever you do, and however you do it, whether that's being very vocal or very silent, do me a favor and do Christ's church a favor 
and do so uncaffeinated. Do so in a way that is, is calm and confident and completely sure of the victory that you have in Jesus Christ. See, as, as these battles continue to go on, the world around us might call us all kinds of things. They might think that we're closed-minded or unloving or foolish or backwards or retrogressive. But let there be one thing that they never mistake us for being. Let, they, let them never accuse us of acting like victims. Because if Jesus really rose from the dead, then victims are the last thing we are. Amen. For more information about Good News Lutheran Church, visit www.goodnewslc.org.